admiration usually comes in one of two forms. On one hand, we admire that which is way beyond us. That is, we, we admire that that we see as being transcendent. Last, last Sunday, uh, Tiger Woods played in the Masters. And everybody, including me, thought that Tiger can't win, that he is done winning majors. And on number 16, Tiger, closing in on the lead and closing in on the green jacket, hits a shot within a foot of the flag, a shot that is utterly transcendent. When you think of the the nerves and you think of the skill and you think of all of the, the factors coming together in that single moment, you watch and your jaw drops and you're astonished that a man can accomplish something such as that. We think of transcendent when we think of LeBron James, right? Well, a man that enormous, that big, who can run that fast and jump that high, it seems almost otherworldly to us. I was reading a book recently, and over the course of the book, the man quotes five different languages. He writes with, a, with such a, a depth of understanding of the world, such insight into God himself, that I, I, I was reading, and every page I would turn, I would just wonder how how can I not see that and how does he see it so clearly when we come into the presence of something that is transcendent or someone that we view to be transcendent we naturally begin to admire them don't we because we recognize something in them that is extraordinary something in them that is unique and if you ever have the opportunity to meet a person like that it's not uncommon to go into a meeting and it feels almost like you're not just meeting another human being. You'll, you'll be nervous and you'll, you'll maybe even tremble and your voice will shake as you'll talk to them. Because you have an appreciation that they are well beyond you, at least in some area, in some arena, that they can do something that you yourself cannot fathom being able to do. But you know, there's another side to admiration. The other side of admiration is not those who are well beyond us, but those who are willing to stay close to us. For all of you that have had an honorable dad in your life, you know what this looks like, right? That you admire your dad and you respect your dad and you treasure your dad. And it's not necessarily because your dad is the smartest man that you've ever met. And it's not because your dad is the strongest man that you've ever met. And your dad's not the wealthiest man that you've ever met and, or the most successful man that you've ever met. But the thing about your dad is, is that he is always there and he is always for you and he's always got your back. So that even in your 30s and in your 40s and in your 50s, you go and you see dad and your dad unashamedly is willing to throw his arms around you and pull you close and remind you that you are his child. You are his son. You are his daughter and he is still proud of you. You can call him at two o'clock in the morning and dad will shake off the rust of the dreams and he'll answer the phone and he'll be willing to give you whatever counsel, whatever advice, whatever encouragement, even to the sacrifice of himself. And so you see his willingness to stick with you. You see his willingness to stay close to you and you're filled with an admiration. An admiration perhaps even greater and for watching Tiger Woods hit a great shot or a man quote from five different languages. But do you know what we're going to see in Christ? 
What we're going to see in Christ is that both are true of him. That both are true of him. That in Christ, he is well beyond us all. He is transcendent beyond anything that we can comprehend, beyond anything we can even begin to fathom. And yet at the very same time, he is the dad that pulls us close and wraps his transcendent arms around human flesh. That's what the resurrection says. That's what the cross says. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. When you get there, if you would stand with us as we prepare to read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 28, we're going to read the first 15 verses together. God's inerrant and sufficient Word says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come. See the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has spread among the Jews to this day. May God bless the reading and the preaching of His Word this morning. You may be seated. This morning, as we come to Matthew's account of the resurrection, what, we, what becomes apparent to us is that he wants us to see at least three realizations about Jesus. Three realizations about Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus' transcendence. That is that Jesus is well exceedingly beyond us. He wants us to see Jesus' imminence. That is that Jesus is with us and near us and close to us. And he wants us to decide what we're going to do about it. First, I want us to see that Jesus is exceedingly beyond us. That Jesus is exceedingly beyond us. You know, Matthew describes a vivid scene here, doesn't he? He describes a scene that, that he must have heard uh, the ladies give an account of a dozen times a scene that, that he wishes he could have just been a fly on the wall to see. The conspirators against Christ, they became nervous that Jesus, this, this dead man that they have just brutally massacred on a Roman cross, that, that somehow word is going to get out that he has been risen from the dead. And if word, they realize that if 
word gets out that this man who spoke with such authority and accomplished such feats in his day that already was rumored to be a prophet of God, that if he is able to raise from the dead, or if just the rumor or the gossip in town is that he raised from the dead, that this may cause a problem for them that they're close to solving but then would never solve. And so they appeal to Pilate and they ask for Pilate to allow them to place guards in front of the tomb. And they do that. They put guards there guarding the tomb and they seal the tomb shut, verifying the body and making sure that it can be tamper-proof. And so the guards are there and you got to believe that these guards think they've got cushy duty here, okay? Their job is to fortify a corpse. A corpse. This isn't exactly fighting off the Spartans, right? Like, this isn't a great war with the Germanic peoples, okay? We're talking about a corpse that they're a little bit concerned that some some fishermen turned disciples might come and try to do something, okay? We have trained soldiers. They aren't concerned about a fisherman. They aren't concerned about former tax collectors coming up against them. These are swordsmen. So here they are doing, just collecting their checks, glad that they can finally have a bit of a break for a change. When all of a sudden, the earth begins to tremble beneath their feet. When all of a sudden, debris begins to fall down the face of the rock where the grave was. When all of a sudden, a creature appears to them that is more fearsome than anything that they've ever beheld before. It appears as though he is clad in lightning, that he is reflecting the actual holiness and glory of God in a way that is fearsome to them. These are the way, this is the very way in both Isaiah and in Revelation that the scriptures describe it, what it means to be in the presence of God. That God's holiness is so potent, that his sovereignty is so absolute, that his power is so unmatchable, that to be in his sight as a creature is to witness as though it were a great storm, his holiness. And so the scriptures, Matthew is wanting us to see that here in the ground laid there was the presence of God, the Son of God, God himself. The soldiers are terrified by what they see. And here they are supposed to guard a corpse and it says that they themselves fall down on the ground as though they are corpses. The the angels throughout the scriptures are not pictured to us as, as little naked babies with wings. They are pictured to us as the fiercest creatures of all of creation. It is the very same angel, in fact, that comes and presents himself to these soldiers that day that in 2 Kings chapter 19 slays 185,000 Assyrians by himself. So here they see it and they are, their, their, their face flushes white. And he rolls back the stone as evidence that the Son of God has risen. Has risen. The Son of God is alive, and this time the very ground leaped for joy in His presence. I want you to think about this. Do you see? Looking at the plans of the chief priests, looking at the plans of the scribes, looking at the plans of the guards to hold the Son of God in a tomb, do you see how silly the plans of man are in light of the power of God? Do you see how silly our plans are from the perspective of God? 
the chief priests and the scribes, they were the mightiest men in all of Israel. Perhaps they have Roman guards there with them, the mightiest military in all of the earth, one of the mightiest militaries in the history of the world. And here in the stage of such brilliant men, such important men, such powerful men, the almighty God humbles them. Soldiers trying to hold the Son of God into a grave is like an outfielder trying to catch a tomahawk missile with a baseball glove. It can't be done. It can't be done. And to try to constrain the power of God with the plans of man is utterly foolish. This is what it looks like every single time we come up with a plan for our life that is different than the Lord's plan. This is what it looks like in our life every time we develop an opinion that is different from what God has said. Our plans look silly from the angle of eternity. You know, we make plans for our kids, don't we? We make plans for our kids to be able to throw a curveball. We make plans for our kids to be able to have scholarships. And what we find out, and what we are finding out increasingly so, that what we are planning is for them to live an affluent, successful, depressed life. Divorced from the big picture. Divorced from true meaning. Divorced from true significance. They have the right house, and they have the right card, and they have the right plaques on the wall, but inside, they are dead bones. We make plans for our careers. We make plans for our futures. We make plans for life and for death. And for many, we say, later, later I will serve the Lord. I plan on it. I plan on getting there. Later I will give my heart to the Lord. Later I will give my life to the Lord. But right now, right now, I just want to live for me for a while. Right now, I just want to have some fun for a while. Right now, I just want to taste what it's like to be uninhibited and unhindered. And so we go and we plan and we make all of these plans only to come to the end of our life when it says, your life is demanded from you this day. From the angle of eternity, our plans look utterly foolish. The plans of the living God are far beyond you, brothers and sisters. So look past you. Look far past yourself and surrender to the sovereign Lord and surrender to the one that is transcendent above our wisdom and transcendent beyond our knowledge and transcendent beyond all understanding that your life can be connected in to what you were designed and intended to be from the beginning. It's not just the, the guards that day that see the angel though, is it? It's also these women, these women that have been ministering, as we saw last week, to, to Jesus from the beginning, that over the course of, of these, this Passion Week, from the scourging to the cross to the, to the death and to the burial, and now, even in the resurrection, they have been there to care for Jesus. They have been there to minister to Jesus. They have been there to bear witness to what Christ has done for them. And so the guards out like lights, these ladies come up and the, the angel says something to them that he doesn't say to the guards. The guards, they're terrified, but they get no words of comfort. They have no words of hope, do they? But the ladies, the ladies, they come. Mary, the Marys come and they're petrified by what they see. But now the angel speaks and he says, don't be afraid. 
don't be afraid. I may be bad news for the guards. Oh, but I'm, I'm good news for you. They stand against me, but I stand for you. And so he comforts them and he reveals to them the real reason that he's come. To the angel, he didn't, he didn't roll away this multi-hundred-pound stone that it would have taken a dozen men to roll away. He didn't roll that away and sit on it and chill with an RC cola just so he could let out the Son of God. The Son of God is gone. The Son of God is risen. He rolled back the stone so that he could bear witness to the women, so that he could bear witness to the disciples so that they could see that Christ was risen, that Christ was no longer there. He rolled back the stone as a testimony to the sovereign might and the sovereign power of the risen Christ. He rolled back the stone, in other words, to show that Jesus wasn't just a man that died on a cross. He wasn't just a man that endured the wrath of God and was forsaken by God. No, this was the Almighty Himself. This was the one that was greater than the grave. This is the one that was beyond death. This is the one that ruled over all of that which, can, which enslaves each one of us. He was the God-man who had come to defeat the cross and to annihilate death Himself. That is, He was far, exceedingly beyond everything that could hold Him back. And it says that they're filled with these counterbalancing emotions. It's, it's a strange, it's a, it's a paradox, isn't it? It says that they're filled with both fear and with great joy. Now that, that seems like an odd couple, doesn't it? To, to be filled with both fear and joy at the same time. But this is what it means to live in relationship with the Almighty. This is what it means to to exist in a relationship with one who is exceedingly beyond us, but at the same time, for us. See, he is holy. Throughout Matthew, in fact, throughout all of the scriptures, when one comes into the presence of God, when one glimpses the power of God repeatedly, do you know what it says about them? They're filled with fear. They're filled with awe. They're filled with wonder. They don't know that Jesus calms the storms, calms the storm that the disciples believe is going to kill them. And do you know how they respond? They don't respond in saying, oh, well, well, that's great news. Let's go back to reading the newspaper. No, they respond in great fear. Who is this that the, that the winds obey them? See, when we come into the presence of the holy God, we are like Isaiah. Uh, R.C. Sproul says it, it is the, the trauma of holiness. We come into the presence of one who is so holy. We come into the presence to one who is so transcendent, one who is so righteous, one who is so pure. And in an instant, we are unraveled as a sinner. Any righteousness that we thought we had, any goodness that we thought was in us is utterly revealed to be corrupted and filthy. And it literally begins to take us apart, to cause us to disintegrate in the seams because we are in the presence of one who is truly mighty and truly holy and truly righteous. And so we are like Isaiah and we say, woe is me for I am ruined. What about when you realize that the one so holy, the one so mighty, the one so great is 
for you and in your corner and has your back. The one who is fearsome brings to you at the same time great joy, doesn't he? He brings to you great joy. This is what the resurrection meant to these women. Jesus had been raised because he was far beyond, transcendent beyond anything that humans can comprehend, but he had been raised for them and he had died for them. And so they tremble at the thought that this man could come back to life just as he said that he would. And at the very same time, their hearts are overwhelmed and overcome with joy. That's what it means to live in relationship with the Almighty. That's what it means to walk in fellowship with God himself. You see, fear and joy coexist in faith. Fear and joy coexist in faith. In fact, you can't practice real faith in God or experience real joy in, from God unless fear is in the picture. Apart from fear, what is faith? Apart from fear, what is faith? If you're always assured of everything, if you're always certain of what's coming, if you're always positive that the plan is going to work out, if you're always 100% without a shadow of a doubt, knowing that all of these things are just fine and your ways always fit and your thoughts are always rational and all of these things come, where is faith needed, brothers and sisters? See, fear necessarily precedes faith. Fear necessarily precedes faith. That if I'm going to demonstrate true trust in the Lord, if I'm going to demonstrate true confidence in the power of God, that it isn't walking with Him when it makes sense. It isn't doing what is easy and what is natural. It is walking against the grain. It is doing that which is supernatural. It is depending upon Him moment by moment for my survival. So I walk in the face of fear. I walk against the grain of hardship and struggle and suffering to get to the other side, to see that the one who is well and exceedingly beyond all of these things has worked it together for my good. And that's where the joy comes from. That's where the joy comes from. See, I wonder if many of us have, are living joyless lives because we are living our lives as though God isn't real. I wonder if many of us are living joyless lives because we are living our lives as though we have it figured out, as though all of it that makes sense is good for us. And so we have no need for intervention from the power of God. We have no need for God to intercept us from hardship and to interrupt our difficulty to demonstrate his power. See, durable joy flows from faith that is exercised in the face of fear. Durable joy flows from faith that is exercised in the face of of fear. In your life right now, what step is God calling you to that you're too afraid to take? Can he raise his son from the dead? Oh, then he can certainly supply your need. What, what is it 
that you're, what area of disobedience in your life are you clinging on to saying, I have to have this. Lord, you can have everything else, but I'm afraid to give up this. I'm afraid to give you this relationship. I'm afraid to hand over to you my sex life. I'm afraid, Lord, to hand over to you my future. Lord, I'm afraid to hand over to you my career. Can he raise Christ from the dead? He is worthy. He is able. He is willing. That is the path of joy. That is the path of joy. The path in which you see the Almighty provide for you supernaturally in the face of your fears. But there's something especially precious in our passage here. Something that if we read it too quickly, we can blow right by it. And that's where I want us to see the second realization. That yes, Jesus is exceedingly beyond us, but at the very same time, Jesus is wonderfully with us. That is, Jesus is not just far beyond us. Jesus is not just for us. Jesus is actually with us. Remember how Matthew starts his gospel. In Matthew chapter one, the, the angels present, and what do they say? They say, his name will be Emmanuel. God with us. This is what Matthew wants us to see here. That the Christ who came, the Christ beyond us, is the Christ who is wonderfully with us. It starts with the simple fact here that Jesus interrupts their journey. Now, I want you to think about this. So the angel comes, and he comes to, these, to, to the Marys, and he says, all right, you have, a, you have a mission. You've been kind. I'm going to minister to you for a second, but I'm, I'm going to commission you to go out and to talk to all of the disciples. So go out, I want you to tell all the disciples that he is risen and you are to meet him in Galilee, all right? So, so they, have, they it doesn't say they just walk, right? It says they run. They begin to run to, to go and to find the other disciples with fear and with great joy and to, to tell them the, the realization that Christ has really raised. And in the midst of that running, Jesus intercepts them. Now what's ironic here is Jesus doesn't tell them anything new, does he? He has to tell them not to be afraid too. But Jesus doesn't tell them to do anything different than the angel told them. He's a matter of fact, he's just confirming what the angel has said. He's just affirming the the information that they already have. So what point was there in Jesus making this visit? Why didn't Jesus just wait to see them in Galilee? I think it's because he wanted them to know that he loved them. These that had stuck with him when everybody else had backed down. These ladies that had drawn near and ministered and cared for him when all of the boys ran out of town, Jesus goes and he finds them. And he he intercepts them. And he just loves on them for a minute. In other words, he intercepts them as, as as an expression of his kindness to them. That yes, he is risen, but he still is their friend. He still loves them. He still cares about them. They they do the only thing that they can rightly do, right? They're they're utterly overcome by the realization that Christ is here. He he who they saw die. He who they saw the, the spit and the blood pour off of him. He who they saw the crown of thorns pressed upon his brow. He who they saw the spear ran and thrust into his side. He who they heard say, it is finished and give up his spirit and breathe his last right here in front of him. 
So as overcome as they are, they respond in the only rational way to respond to the man who is raised from the dead. They lower themselves as though they are beggars before their king and they wrap themselves around his ankles. Oh, and words that are mindless and words that are soulless and worship that is meaningless. It just won't do. No, no, no. They bow themselves in the presence of the risen Christ and they proclaim his glory and worship. Christ that has been humiliated is now here exalted. Jesus was so great that he had defeated the grave. Yet Jesus was so close that they could bow and touch the very feet of Almighty God. This is what saving faith looks like. Faith that remains dignified doesn't save. Faith that aims to save face and keep your dignity and maintain your standing in the eyes of your family and your acquaintances, it won't save. No, like a husband willing to bow on his knee in a restaurant filled with people, like a, like a teenager who sees their dad come home from war in front of all of his friends, throws his arms around his dad and just sobs without concern for being cool. Those who are saved by faith, those who are saved by Christ, go and wrap themselves around his ankles at his feet and they say, Jesus, I don't care the cost. I don't care what it means. You get it all. I just want you. We can just get Jesus. We won't need anything else. That is the picture of saving faith. Not signing your name on a card, not passing through a baptistry at some point in your life, becoming undignified and devout in your commitment to the Lord. But Jesus' words get sweeter still. Jesus' words get sweeter still. Now, we've talked a lot about the abandonment of the disciples over the last few weeks, right? I've, I've mentioned it already this morning. Peter, who so boldly and brazenly says, I will fight for the death for you, Jesus. I will die before I betray you, goes and he denies him to a little schoolgirl. Matthew, the author of this gospel, nowhere to be found, has to get the account from the women who were there. All of the disciples in witness protection, fearing that what happened to their Savior will happen to them. But you see what he says? Do you see what he says in verse 10? Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Underline that. My brothers. Go to Galilee and there they will see me. He calls the ones who denied him his brother. He calls the ones who abandoned him his brothers. He calls the ones who doubted him his brothers. You see, it's this little phrase. This little phrase, my brothers, that stands in the background of all of Scripture, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. This is the story, how Christ has come to make us His 
that Christ has come to make us who were enemies into children, into brothers, into family. Those of us who were traitors now transformed into the very image of Christ himself. Those who stood against the living God now standing in the presence of God as his beloved. That is the narrative of the scriptures. And here it is confirmed in its power and in its, in its impact to the disciples. My brothers, my brothers. At least once a week. At least once a week, it seems as though I go to lunch with somebody, I get a call from somebody, I have a conversation with somebody, I get a text from somebody, and we have a conversation, something like this. Cody, it's just too late for me. I'd sinned, and I know the Lord forgives sin, and I, and I, and I know that I, I've, you know, I've heard all the stories about grace, and I, I know all of that, but I'm in too deep. I'm in too deep. I've crossed my arms in the face of God one too many times. I've spat in the, on the plan of God one too many times. And man, you just don't know what's in my closet. And you just don't know what my story is. I'm beyond help. I'm beyond saving. I'm beyond redemption. Do you see what the gospel says? Do you see what the gospel says? That when you were adopted into the family of God, there is then there no process by which you can be disinherited. That when you are brought to the table of the Father through the Son, then you can never be expelled from the table again. That if you are truly His disciple, and you have come in true saving faith, that here He is, the one who is exceedingly beyond you, able to do whatever He pleases, willing to work wonderfully with you and in you, in you to deliver you from everything in your closet and everything from your past, from every ghost that's haunting you right now so that you can fellowship with him. This morning, return to your father's house. Return to your father's house. There's some that might say, you know, it's been a minute since I've worshipped the Lord. It's been a minute since I've truly come and devoted my life to the Lord. It's been a minute since I've been serious about repentance and serious about worship. It's been a minute since I've wrapped my hands around the ankles of Christ. Oh, this morning, this morning, my brothers, this morning, my sisters, come to our Father's house. Come to our Father's house and bow yourself before the risen Christ and let He who is well beyond you draw you near and set you free. Finally, we see that Jesus is personally decisive. Jesus is exceedingly beyond us. Jesus is wonderfully with us. Jesus is personally decisive. You see, remember what the, when, when Jesus is hanging on the cross and the chief priests and the scribes, they're all there and they're gathered around the, the cross. Remember what they said to Jesus? Come down from there and then we'll believe. Pill yourself off of the cross. Let the angels come and rescue. However you want to do it, Jesus. You've said you are the son of God. Surely God wouldn't let his son die this way. Surely God wouldn't let his son be defeated so publicly, humiliated in a way like this. So, so if you really are the prophet, 
If you really are the greater Moses and the greater David, come off the cross. Come off the cross and then we'll believe. Come off the cross and, and then we'll know. And you know what we see here? All of that, we're not, we're not offerings of faith, they were expressions of unbelief. Because what is greater? For a man who still has a beat in his chest and oxygen in his lungs to somehow survive what is horrendous? Or for a man three days dead to come back to life and to walk before hundreds of witnesses? One who the guards give testimony to the high priest that he is alive. The one in which they have to be paid hush money to keep the, so the story that they've seen and they know silent. What is more miraculous? To be delivered from the cross or to be delivered from the grave? Here was Christ. He had been raised. But the chief priests, they had already decided. And so they doubled down on their unbelief. And they double down in their hard-heartedness. And they double down on their rejection of Christ. A few years ago, Megan and I went camping up in North Georgia. And a bear decided to roll through our sights. Now, I don't know how close all of y'all have been to a bear. But most Alabama boys don't have a lot of those encounters. You know what I'm saying? So here I was. And there was a bear 20 feet from me, staring me right in the eye. Every hair on my neck was standing at attention. There was a, a cold chill running down my spine because what you realize in the, in, the, in the presence of an apex predator like a bear is to know that this thing can come on me faster than I can move and it can do damage that I can do nothing to combat. And so you stand there and you tremble and the bear, it is fearsome. But you know, not to her cubs. Not to her cubs. You see, to her cubs, her fearsomeness is a refuge. Her, her ferocity is a shelter. It is an ever-present hope that allows them to sustain until they get to the other side of life that allows them to flourish and allows them to thrive and allows them to know that they are protected and they are defended and they will be delivered. For every person that has ever lived, that will be your experience with the Lord God Almighty. That you come into his presence and he doesn't know you and he doesn't recognize you and you have not devoted your life to him in faith and you will stand there and you will tremble and you will be incinerated. If you're his son, if you're his daughter, if you're, if you're his child, you will be brought into his household and his ferocity is for you and his tenacity is for you and he will deliver you and he will be a refuge for you and he will be a shelter for you the question is what will you decide what will you decide will you stay in charge of your life or will you bring your life and offer it at the feet of the Lord Jesus in, in realization of the power of the Almighty? Will you throw yourself on His graces and on His mercy? Or will you double down on your skepticism and double down on your hard-heartedness and double down on your rejection of Christ? You have to decide this morning. 
You have to decide this morning. Some of you are Christians, and it's been a long time since you've brought yourself to the feet of Jesus. This morning, will you decide to come and, to re- and reveal the fruit of true salvation in your life and bow before the risen Christ? Some of you, you have, you have known and purposefully rejected the Lord all of your life, or some of you have walked through the waters of a baptistry but never had the Spirit transform you, never walked in obedience. Today, would you come to Christ and bow yourself before Him and be delivered? from your sin by the one who is exceedingly able to do all of these things. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.